Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the changes. Today, I'm joined by Michael Gaski from Fender. Hi, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Jan. Thanks for having me on today. Yes, yeah, nice to have you here. And uh, I've heard about Fender quite a few times now from uh, reInvent. Uh, in fact, you guys got mentioned in a keynote a few years ago about how you're using serverless to revolutionize your e-commerce platform. Uh, for the audience who are not familiar with Fender, can you just maybe talk to us about uh, what Fender is and uh, maybe your role there as well? Sure. Um, Fender has been a company since 1946. Uh, when we initially launched the Fender Telecaster with the Stratocaster following that. And we also make amplifiers, both digital and still tube amplifiers as well. Our digital team, we're based here in Los Angeles, and we're responsible for the, the digital side of Fender, which currently consists of Fender Tune, a guitar tuning mobile app, and Fender Play, a web and mobile application for instruction of guitar, bass, and ukulele. We have another app, Fender Tone, which is a companion desktop or mobile application for our digital amplifiers, but that's managed by the amplifier team. So the, we're a little bit separate from the IT group. The IT group uses serverless as well, but they're more focused on B2B. So we're more the B2C side. All right. So in that case, uh, for your B2C business, you know, how are you using serverless and uh, what does your architecture look like from a really high level? So our architecture is based around API Gateway and Lambda. All of our Lambda functions are written in Go, and we've been using Go even since before Lambda had native support for it, using as a framework called Apex that would put a Node.js shim that would start up the Go binary and feed data in on standard out and pick the reply or feed data in on standard in and pick up the reply on standard out but we take the our services of the like a, a microservice built around a given business domain that will be comprised of multiple lambda functions uh, generally there's a a single function per route or met, route method combination um, some of them may handle the same route like say for our, in our curriculum system there's only one Lambda function that handles a given entity, but it handles all the different CRUD operations. It just does a little method inspection inside the function. Um, and we deploy all of those Lambdas as one single unit. So there may be, say, 20 functions in a given service that are you know, triggered by a Dynamo stream or SNS function or API gateway. And we, we build them in such a way that like there's a common shared business logic and the functions themselves are, are very small. They're just validating the incoming request, executing business logic and formatting the response. Uh, we use SNS quite a bit for our application events for say when a user subscription status changes or a new user signs up. <clears throat> so we can take other actions such as if they've signed up for an annual plan, they can get a discount on physical products. And we, for data stores, a lot of use of DynamoDB and Aurora as well for data that's just highly relational, such as our curriculum. And for our data infrastructure, we have an S3 data lake setup. Okay, so that's, that combination of, uh, I guess, uh, what you call single purpose functions, where a single function handles just one particular uh, route and method versus uh, 
I forgot how things. I forgot what people call it now. It's a lambda lift where you got a function that handles multiple things uh, within an API. Um, do you guys have sometimes make that decision to have a single function to handle multiple CRUD operations by inspecting the path itself and sorry the path and the uh, method uh, itself because you're running into the resource count limit within a CloudFormation stack. Um, it's not really a resource path limit. It's more rather than kind of keeping the number of individual functions down. So, for example, if you're managing a lesson, uh, having an individual function for a lesson get, a lesson create, a lesson update, it, it, it's a, it seems a bit much. So for things like that, where they're all dealing around the same entity, just with a different HTTP method, that works out very well for us. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um... In this case, uh, how big is your team? Sounds like you've got quite a few different microservices. Uh, I've got API Gateway with Lambda combination with DimeDB behind it. Uh, how big is the team that's, look after, that's looking after all of this infrastructure? So we have three API engineers, uh, two, and they all work on the Lambda-based APIs. We have uh, two data engineers, and we have four dedicated ops engineers that do a lot of the, maintain all the infrastructure, because we have a lot of legacy infrastructure as well. So there's a massive array of redirects over the years, as well as setting up our client deployment pipelines. Okay, that's actually quite interesting uh, that you have more ops engineers than you have uh, API engineers that are working on uh, features, especially within like a serverless context. But I guess uh, they, they, no, those uh, ops engineers don't just work on a serverless stack, but they also work on a lot of the, uh, I guess, your legacy application as well. Correct. Yeah, they have. Uh, they run the gamut. That I would say the work they do for to support the APIs is maybe about half of their total workload. So in this case, uh, do your API engineers also are responsible for spinning up AWS resources uh, using, I don't know, SAM, CDK, or server framework? Or is that like a handoff process where they do their bit and then give it to the ops engineers to do the release and the management and running of the application in production? It would be that latter case where when we're, say, developing a new service or making some substantial changes to one, uh, each engineer has their own AWS account, and they can use serverless to deploy into that account to, um, and use cloud serverless and CloudFormation to set up those resources, such as DynamoDB, SNS. And then when we're in the process of developing that, we're also letting the ops team know, hey, this is what we need. We've got this function is going to be invoked this way so that they can get everything set up. Our infrastructure is all managed in Terraform and they get everything set up for us. So then as soon as we're ready and can merge into master, everything deploys without a hitch. Um, so am I understanding you correctly that you're saying that the, the API teams, the API engineers are developing using the server framework, but then to deploy to actual production, the ops engineers have to translate that into Terraform. Correct. Okay, I've actually seen that a few times, and uh, usually that creates a lot of friction and certainly a lot of, uh, I guess, delays in the process because you've got engineers that are, you know, that are able to spin up lots of different resources, like API Gateway, for example, uh, which you know, using the server framework is quite easy, but when you need to translate that to Terraform, it becomes a bit more uh, cumbersome and becomes a bit more laborious because you just have to write a lot more boilerplate um, is that ever a problem for you guys that you know, you're being slowed down because of this need to translate your infrastructure stack? No, it hasn't, because usually when the engineer 
starts and developing, they know what resources they need. So while they're setting things up and making sure their code is working properly, the ops team is getting all the resources defined in Terraform for them. And for API Gateway, we use uh, the open API definitions. So that's it's easy enough for us to manage and maintain and then even turn those into documentation. Okay, so with the server framework, which I've assumed that's what your API teams are using, um, there's no built-in support for API or for open API spec. At least uh, in terms of defining the API itself, uh, there's support for documentation afterwards uh, once you've sort of deployed something. So how do you guys uh, use the open API spec in this case? So in this case, it's the open API spec is used when with along with the Terraform deployment to keep API gateway up to date. And then we take those same definitions and we run them through the Redoc CLI to generate documentation. Right, right. Okay, gotcha. Um, so maybe bring it, it back slightly. Um, uh, how did how do you guys uh, decide to go serverless in the first place? Uh, what were some of the main motivations you had? So we started using serverless very early in Fender Digital. Fender Digital has only been around for about four and a half years or so. So before we even launched our first products, we had to set up some initial services. One service was a product service. So given a, an IDA product SKU, you know, return metadata about that product. Now that all of that product data is managed by our IT team and it's in a completely separate repository. And they were able to deliver us an export of that uh, by just dropping it into an S3 bucket for us. And we're just like, well, why not just use the S3 Lambda trigger, process that data and load it up into DynamoDB. And that worked out really well for us. And then we expanded on when we started launching Fender Tune, there's a feature that allows a user to save custom guitar tunings. So if they want to tune two steps down, they can, they can save that. And for that, we just use API Gateway, DynamoDB and the, the mapping templates so that there wasn't any Lambda function whatsoever. And then we had good luck with that. We were experimenting with other small services. And when we started building the infrastructure for Fender Play, we just decided to go all in serverless. We were, from our, our early experiments, things were very successful and we're fortunate enough to be uh, given that freedom to be able to use that and experiment with that. Okay, and when you say you know you were quite you you were very successful with those uh, serverless projects early on, um, what would you say are sort of the, the big benefits that you guys got uh, from serverless as a business and as a development team? Uh, well, as a development team, it all comes down. To, I don't. I would say we do move a little bit faster, but it certainly keeps the it keeps engineering team much more engaged because it's a newer technology, it's a new approach, it's something interesting to figure out. So just that whole. Um, personnel side of it has been fantastic for us. And business side, the biggest advantages has been cost reduction. We estimated that, you know, if we had done with uh, EC2 services, it would we've saved about 90% over that. And given that we were launching a new product and we were probably were not going to have really high traffic out of the gate, it seemed like a really good way to go to keep costs down low. Did you say 98%? <laughs> 90. 90%. 90%. Okay. But that's yeah. still really, really significant, uh, uh, yeah. which I guess makes sense, uh, especially like you said, uh, you know, if you don't have a lot of traffic coming through, you're going to have you know, EC2 servers that are sitting there idle and you still have to pay for multi-AZ uh, deployment just so that you have some you know, redundancy in place. Uh, certainly, that you know, that's actually quite um, 
quite similar to, to a few of the other companies that I know has gone to serverless. Uh, one of my previous companies that I worked on, that we also went serverless. It was a social network and we had lots of spikes. So we had lots of uh, spare capacity sitting around just in case the spike comes. And when we moved to serverless, uh, we saved you know, about 80 90 something percent of our costs as well. One of the things I guess maybe I want to bring it back a little bit to what you were talking about earlier in terms of the split of responsibilities. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed working with serverless stack is that you know, as an engineer, as a feature engineer, I can have a lot of uh, autonomy over the infrastructure, uh, what resources are provisioned and things like that. Uh, uh, and one of the flip side of that is I'm now also, you know, I can be more responsible for monitoring and uh, running my application in production. Sounds like some of that so runtime so monitoring and the troubleshooting is now handled by the ops team and not the uh, api team do you ever find that um, you have some of the problem that comes with you know, having people that are looking after application that they didn't build themselves so troubleshooting is not as easy as it should be Th that is true uh that we do in, we do encounter that because our ops team does reply respond to things however one one advantage of well, I don't know if it's an advantage, but one distinct difference with with a serverless infrastructure is that when there is an application problem, it's most likely not code related, but it's generally like a third party service is having a problem or something like that is going on. Our CRM providers, APIs are returning errors or timing out. It's usually something we can't really do anything about other than just notify people. That's actually very true. Um, you don't have those kind of infrastructure problems that you know, somehow you have to deal with and uh, mitigate because you just get all of that uh, resiliency out of the box with a serverless. Um, but you touch on an interesting thing here that mostly is problem with some other third-party system that we're using or even other AWS services that we're using. How do you know? How do you go about in terms of your monitoring and all of that, uh, uh, your observability setup, so that you can quickly identify what service is the problem and therefore decide what you need to do or no you don't need to do anything a lot of it just depends around like what service is having the issue like uh, for example if our crm provider is having having a little few issues we know that there's going we're going to see some more in our email service that kind of takes care of all that communication with them we that's where we'd see a higher error rate in that and for some apis and some services we actually have some like a simple monitoring place uh, to let us know like, oh, we, we, we ping this like simple API call or we look at their status page of a given service. And if it's not all green or it says that there's an error, we'll alert people via Slack channel. So in this case, uh, are you tracking the, the the status code that's returned by this, the, I don't know, CMS service or other services that you're depending on? Uh, so from your Lambda function, maybe you're talking to DynamDB and then you're talking to, I don't know, Algolia or something like that. So in order to sort of quickly identify that the the sort of the, uh, the elevated error rate that you are seeing from your own API is because of problems happening in Algolia or something like that. So do you have some monitoring in place for all these different API calls that you are making from your Lambda functions? We don't monitor every single third-party API call. It's a lot of times just the status pages where they'll say like if there's no error or anything like that. And we'll kind of keep an eye on that to alert us when that changes. 
Okay, and then I guess uh, when something does happen, what does your um, engineers do? Do they just go into the logs and see where the problem was? Do they use uh, tools like X-ray or tracing tools like that to sort of figure out uh, where invocation got to? And then the, if it made the DynamDB call, but then it errored, that means it must have errored when you're trying to talk to um, Algolia or some other s service. Uh, yes, we you, we aggregate all of our Lambda logs from CloudWatch into Honeycomb. And Honeycomb is one of my all-time favorite observability tools. It allows us to easily, quickly identify the errors and find any problems and determine what the root cause is so we can take action from there. Oh, right, yeah, Honeycomb. Honeycomb is great. Uh, I love uh, um, that whole paradigm of uh, everything is an event, and then you don't pre-aggregate for metrics. You can just do ad hoc slicing and dicing. Um, but one of the things that I find with Honeycomb, this certainly working with you know, serverless, uh, is that uh, it does require you to do a bit more work yourself. Uh, I mean, I've done a lot of work with uh, a, a client of mine where we're turning a lot of those events and then uh, API gateway logs into traces so that we can see them inside Honeycomb as well. But a lot of that sort of instrumentation becomes custom and things that we have to do yourself. Is that something that you guys have invested a bit of engineering time into to make the experience quite smooth and quite easy? Uh, yes, we have an internal framework that's uh, created that acts as middleware in our functions. It's very similar. I believe the function is for Node is uh, called MIDI. It allows you to add like Lambda middleware. And in that middleware, that's where we, so the, the event comes in from, from AWS into our Lambda function and it goes through this middleware first before executing the handler. And the middleware does things such as setting up a request scoped logger and putting it in the Go context. So that way we've got all of the necessary fields for good structured logging. That'll include all of the HTTP headers, uh, refer, uh, the HTTP method route, like anything within that incoming event are added as individual log fields. And that way the individual applications don't really have to worry about logging. They can just pull the logger out of the context and log an entry if they need to. And if they don't need to log anything when the function completes invocation, it'll actually log the final status. Oh, that's great. Uh, I'm actually one of the core team members uh, behind MIDI, and I really love that uh, middleware approach. Uh, it does take out a lot of the boilerplate and the cross-cutting concerns uh, that people have uh, with their Lambda functions. Uh, is there something that you guys uh, are going to open source potentially? Because uh, I, I imagine other people may be also interested as well. Uh, yes, ab absolutely. It is something we do want to do. There's a, a documentation cleanup we need to do, and there's a, like a few minor inconsistencies where the same thing may be handled in a different approach that want to make sure we get cleaned up. And then there's getting sign-off from legal on the appropriate license to use. So, But that's we do intend to open source that. That's cool. That's wonderful. Uh, well, let me know uh, when you do so that, that I can uh, share uh, with other people and also uh, potentially add it to the show notes for this episode uh, when it comes out. So in that case, I want to also just talk about a little bit about your journey towards uh, serverless as well. What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced along the way? Oh, I think the biggest challenge is since it's a, like a new paradigm for application development was tooling and workflows. Um, and you, we ran some challenges with Go due to the fact that if you have multiple Lambda functions, you need to like do that build. You're building a, a native static binary. And if you've got 20 Lambda functions and you're building them uh, serially, it can take a long time. 
So what we actually did is we created a build process that actually uses Lambda to build all of the functions in parallel. So each function is built by a build function that's triggered by CircleCI that will then, it'll build function one, it'll build all the functions in parallel and then we pull it all together. So that, that brought down, we had some build times that were exceeding 30 minutes and we don't have a build time that exceeds three minutes anymore. Okay, and uh, if we were to do the whole migration to serverless all over again, uh, are there anything that you would have done differently this time? Well, one thing that we've, um, we've we thought of is that, you know, having a separate, completely separate binary for each individual Lambda function isn't really necessary. It, see, with Go, unfortunately, you can't make use of layers because you're, you're building a static binary. However, for a given service, like let's say our subscription service, we could have one single binary that's deployed to multiple functions. You know, each of those functions have their permissions so that they're not able to do any more than they're supposed to do, such as read from the DynamoDB, or because if it doesn't need to write, that function shouldn't have write permissions. But And then within the Lambda function, to basically look at the AWS environment variable to see what the handler is like, oh, I am the subscription create function, so this is the handler I'm going to use. That would have, you know, solved our build issue. Um, that would be one thing I think possibly different. Another might be we may explore sort of like the like a hybrid Terraform cloud formation deployments, where Terraform is used for a lot of the overall infrastructure, and then using cloud formation and serverless within just the individual application stack, and then referring to things. I've read a lot about that, and we've talked about that internally, but however, as, as we're currently fairly well entrenched and have everything up to speed very efficiently in Terraform, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to go through and change all that up. Yeah, I thought that was a bit strange as well that you have this translation, uh, but I, I figured that it might be the case that you're so well entrenched into you know having everything in Terraform and being able to use uh, Terraform for deployment uh, for everything um, that you know you might just be sticking with uh, that because of those legacy reasons. Uh, um, rather than just you know doing everything with Terraform for the share stack, which is what I see most people do, where a lot of VPCs and sort of lending zone sort of settings, or, well, resources are configured with Terraform, but then the actual application itself, individual APIs and so on, those are all done using you know, frameworks like the server framework, where you can get a lot of productivity out of it without having to sort of do that translation la uh, layer later. Um, in this case, uh, if, if you're looking at, I guess, uh, AWS as, uh, I guess, a bigger thing, uh, are there are there are there any other things that uh, you wish AWS would do better? Uh, you know, what would be your you know, top three AWS uh, wish list items? I would say one would be some functionality. I believe the fun I believe from what I've heard, the functionality is within Azure to where you can create a uh, dead letter queue for a function just right away. You don't have to define a separate resource. You can define it along with the function. Um, possibly, oh, definitely, we migrated to Cognito for authentication. We had our own internal system initially and ended up migrating to Cognito so we wouldn't have to manage it anymore. Some of the observability into Cognito, there's you know, rate limiting within Cognito, which, which makes sense, but it's hard to see how close you are getting to those rate limits. And then native sign-in with Apple, there's really no native sign-in with Apple support. It kind of has to go through a web view. Um, and then also like a generic OAuth 2 connector would be really nice. We're dealing with some potential 
third parties that don't support OpenID Connect, but they do support generic OAuth, that would be something nice to have. And maybe even like a documentation hub for APIs that could take that open API definition so we don't need to manage things on our side and set up our own process, processing it with Redoc, that it's just all like built-in feature of API Gateway. Yeah, I think some of that um, they are actively working on. Uh, I know with the HP, uh, HTTP API, uh, the new sort of new kind of API that you can have in API Gateway, um, it does support, it has got built-in support for OAuth authentication. Um, but um, I don't know if they're going to pull that back to REST APIs in API Gateway. Uh, but that does definitely sound like something that is really useful. Um, but I'm quite curious about that first uh, use. The first thing you mentioned about having a DLQ that's built in without you know, having to need a separate resource. Uh, what sort of use case are you thinking about for that? Uh, it's just more of just saving time. It's just a little easier. Rather, rather than having to define a separate resource and set permissions that you know this can write to that that it'd be nice just to set a Boolean flag and then it creates the dead letter queue and automatically kind of wires it up for you. Okay, gotcha. Um, but uh, with also with the DLQs in Lambda, uh, it only works for async invocations, so it doesn't work for things like API Gateway invocations, which is asynchronous. So do you have a use cases where you can, you know, you want to use some kind of DLQ for API Gateway or other synchronous invocations as well? Uh, no, for synchronous invocations, that, that, that wouldn't be necessary. It's more for the asynchronous invocation, say, so when we're updating an external party, um, say when a user subscription status changes, we want to keep our CRM system up to date with the status on that user subscription and being able to retry if connect, connecting to that third party, you know, give it the three retries and then from there into a dead letter queue and then we can process that later if they're having some sort of an outage issue. Okay, gotcha, uh, gotcha. Um, so I think that's everything that I wanted to cover. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell the listeners about? Uh, maybe personal projects they want to share, or maybe uh, initiatives that uh, Fender is, uh, you know, is is running right now. I would say the the first thing is that the scalability in Lambda. We recently ran a promotion due to for COVID nineteen to allow anyone to get a free three-month subscription, no credit card required. And that more than tripled our monthly active users. And apart from being proactive and making sure our concurrent invocation limit was raised, we had absolutely no issue with our serverless infrastructure. It just handled the load without a problem. The only real changes we needed to make is we still use Elasticsearch for some functionality is we just had to add a few nodes to the cluster and change some of the replication factors on the in indices. Uh, but other than that, it was a more than triple of traffic and no problem handling it whatsoever. Yeah, that's one of the beauties of serverless, right? It just auto scales with no problem. Uh, all you have to do is keep an eye on your limits. And I think um, that thing you mentioned about Elasticsearch, uh, that's also quite a common thing people have to do because that's one of the few places where you still have to worry about servers, you still have to do some kind of capacity planning. And one of the things that uh, quite a few people on this uh, podcast has asked for is some kind of a serverless Elasticsearch, uh, essentially. And I think so far, Algolia is probably the closest thing I've seen uh, to a serverless uh, Oak stack. Uh, I do think Algolia is a really nice service and I hope uh, one, one day, AWS will offer some kind of a serverless Elasticsearch that you know, 
just takes away from uh, for me all this uh, overhead of uh, having to manage and you know, scaling up and uh, or scaling out the number of nodes for Elasticsearch. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Algolia because that's who we've migrated all of our tech search to and a lot of our browse for browsing through lessons and filtering is where we've migrated all of that into Algolia. It's a lovely service. Oh yeah, I'm a big fan as well. I used it quite a few projects now. It's uh, it's really nice to use, uh, really nice and easy to use, uh, and uh, there's no server to set up. Just uh, open up an account, get a token, that's it, and you can really find great uh, access control as well with different API keys, which I thought was great. And you can also generate them programmatically, so you can have you know user uh, API keys that's tied to a particular session and all of that, which is uh, re all real good stuff. And I think I think that's it. That's uh, everything that uh, I have in my mind. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining me today and for sharing your you know, your stories uh, with our listeners. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on today. Take care and uh, stay safe. Well, will do. You as well. That's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes and the transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.